Merry Christmas. It's good to be with you all this morning and have this opportunity to open up God's word together. Before we do that, I'm going to go ahead and pray again for us briefly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would grant the spirit to open our hearts, our ears, our eyes, our minds to receive the fullness of your glory and of your word to us in this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 39 to 56. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on page 856. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of the copies we provided as a gift from us to you. There really is nothing that we would want more than for you to have a copy of God's Word for yourself. As always, I want to encourage you to turn to the passage so that you can Follow along as I read it in a few moments, and I want to also encourage you to keep the passage open in front of you throughout our time this morning, because we're going to be looking at it often. Different events elicit different responses, right? I'm I'm sure this is intuitive to you, right? A, A child graduating from high school, for instance, elicits pride from their parents. Uh, The passing of a loved one elicits sorrow. A dear friend getting married after a prolonged season of singleness elicits joyful celebration. Uh, The loss of a job elicits fear. We could come up with different examples, but I'm sure you all trust and agree that it's easy to see that different events elicit different responses. What about Christmas? Christmas, after all, is an event, perhaps one of the most looked forward to events of the year. What types of uh, responses does Christmas elicit? I'd like to open it up to the kids and teens. Kids, how do you all respond to Christmas? What do you feel and think about Christmas? You can just shout it out. Joy, what else? Excited, what else? Fun, what else? Happy, yes, those are all great descriptions of how we respond to Christmas. Those responses make total total sense, right? You're excited about the gifts you might receive. Maybe you're happy about the Christmas movies you get to watch or the special treats your parents let you have. Or for the adults, maybe you're relieved by a short break from work or experiencing joy Uh, at gathering with extended family. All of those are normal responses to Christmas. Yet, as we think about Christmas and the common responses that we have to Christmas, we always need to remember the event that gives Christmas meaning in the first place. What event am I talking about, kids? Jesus' birth, right? The birth of Jesus Christ. We always need to remember that that event is at the heart of Christmas. Everything else, the gifts, the holiday breaks from school and work, the tasty treats, the Christmas movies, the family gatherings, those are all wonderful, but they're not the main point of Christmas. The main point of Christmas, the main event of Christmas is the celebration of the staggering reality 
that God became a man, was born in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what our passage today shows us is how we should respond to that event. So I want to invite you to follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. This is God's word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. If you're taking notes, the main lesson from our passage today is that Jesus' coming into the world should elicit wonder, joy, and faith in us. Jesus' coming into the world should elicit wonder, joy, and faith in us. So first, Jesus' coming into the world should elicit in us wonder. When I say Jesus' coming into the world should elicit wonder, what I mean is awestruck wonder. Amazed wonder. I mean being astounded by the miracle of the incarnation and all that it entails. And where do we see that in our passage? I want you to go ahead and look with me at the text. We need to remember what has just happened, right? In the previous passage, the angel Gabriel shared with Mary that she would conceive a son, and that son would be God in the flesh, and he shared with her that her relative Elizabeth, who had been barren, unable to have children up to that point, had already conceived a son, who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And after hearing that news, Mary goes. If you look at verse 39, she goes with haste. 
She speedily goes, picks up her bags and leaves, goes into the hill country to visit her relative Elizabeth. And when Mary arrives and greets Elizabeth, we see in verse 41 that the sound of Mary's voice causes the baby to leap in Elizabeth's womb. Then immediately, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. She becomes a prophet at this point, interpreting what is going on around her by the Spirit. Notice what she says. Look at verse 42. She declares that Mary is blessed and that the child in her womb is blessed. That's a pronouncement that God's favor has fallen on Mary because God has chosen her to carry the Messiah, the God-man, the Savior of mankind in her very own womb. Then I want you to look at the rhetorical question Elizabeth asks next. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The word Lord there, the mother of my Lord, that word Lord has already appeared 10 times in Luke 1 before this, and each time it refers to the Lord God himself. Elizabeth is filled with wonder, awestruck wonder, amazed and astounded wonder that God would visit her. Why would God show me this astounding honor? Why would God, most high, count me worthy of this privilege? I, I'm not worthy. That's, that's essentially what she's saying when she's asking that question. She's captivated by a sense of wonder that the Lord of the universe would come into the world and that he would visit her. Friends, Jesus' coming into the world, it's, it's one of the deepest mysteries there is in the Christian faith. And I trust that it's probably hard for you to really wrap your mind around how deeply mysterious it is. And because it's so hard to, to really wrap your mind around how deeply mysterious and profound and stupendous it is, it is kind of hard to really feel the wonder of it because it's just, I, I can't even grasp it, so how can I wonder at it? But I wonder if you would join me in thinking for just a minute or two about what makes this event so wondrous and why we should be filled with wonder. Jesus is coming into the world. Should elicit wonder in us? Reflecting on Jesus' coming birth, Paul Tripp writes, this story is so miraculous in every way that it could only have come out of the mind of God in eternity before the foundations of the earth were laid down by his mighty hand. It points to the divine imagination and screams the power of the divine hand. I had another quote that I was going to use from Augustine, but I read it, and I was amazed at the end of it, but I couldn't figure out why, was, why I was amazed at the end of it. 
because it was so deep and like ah, mind-bendingly kind of complex that everything he was saying that it was just like, wow, that's amazing, but I'm not sure why that's amazing. I'll just kind of give us a, a, a perhaps easier quote to follow. It's just the, the birth and incarnation of Jesus points to the divine imagination and screams the power of the mind hand. Think with me about this. Jesus is coming into the world should elicit wonder in us because of who Jesus is in himself. Jesus is the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Think about powerful people on earth. He's the most powerful in the universe and in all eternity, infinitely past. The firstborn of all creation. The creator and sustainer of life. He's the one, as John says, through whom all things were made. And without him was nothing made that has been made. He made the womb that he is then inside. He is the self-existent God. Jesus isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life and breath to all men and to everything. And he gives life to all things because he has life in himself. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The fountain of human life was then implanted in the womb of a woman. The one from whom all life springs forth then came forth as all life after him came forth. And he is the unchanging God. He is the Lord who does not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Because he has poured out his grace on you who have believed, and because he does not change, his grace always remains with you. His steadfast love is always with you. He is the unchanging God. He is the God with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is the one whose counsel stands forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The number of his years is unsearchable because he's eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. He's the God who dwells in unapproachable light, the one who's robed in majesty and clothed in strength, the one who is holy, 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 the one whose voice strips the forest bare. His hand cannot be restrained. He does all that he pleases. With his finger, he can stir up a hurricane. Peals of thunder and bolts of lightning emanate from his glorious presence. The earth melts like wax before him, and all in his temple cry, Glory! The self-sufficient self-existent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite, and eternal God was nestled within Mary's womb. Jesus' coming into the world is cause for wonder 
because of who he is. Think of who he is, friends. But it's also cause for wonder because of who we are. Right? Elizabeth's wonder isn't just fueled by her awareness of who God is, that my Lord should come to me. It's fueled by an awareness of who, who she is. How is it that my Lord should come to me? I don't deserve this honor at all. There's nothing in me that should cause God to want to come to me. Just as Elizabeth knew who the Lord was from the scriptures, she also would have known who she was from scripture. She would have known that we are like lost and helpless sheep. Like people wandering in the desert. Or as Ezekiel says, like newborn infants cast into the wilderness. Like the Psalms say, people who are enslaved in shackles and chains. Like those dwelling in darkness. Like those who were starving and thirsty with nothing to eat. She would have known that there is none righteous, no, not one, from Psalm 14. She would have known that all had turned aside and together become corrupt from Psalm 53. She would have known that in God's eyes, all people have throats like open graves, Psalm 5, or tongues that are venomous, Psalm 140, or tongues full of curses and bitterness, Psalm 10. Our feet are swift to shed blood, Isaiah 59, and there is no fear of God before our eyes, Psalm 36. And those twin realities, who God is and who we are, and that God would come to save us. That fuels in her wonder that the Lord, who is holy and perfect and pure, would come to a people who entirely rejected him and wanted nothing to do with him. He would pursue him so far that the eternal God would enter into time and space. He would come into our world to pursue us in love, to save us. Jesus' coming into the world to save sinners is cause for wonder. Wonder and amazement should mark God's people, as hard as it might be to wrap our minds around it. We could even go so far as to say that wonder is a fruit of the Spirit. Why do I say that? Notice that Elizabeth's question, her expression of wonder and astonishment, comes after the Holy Spirit fills her and speaks through her. The Holy Spirit's like, you humans should be filled with wonder, but you're not, so I'm going to fill you with wonder so that you can proclaim wonder and amazement at what's going on here. The Spirit leads her to see, I cannot believe that my Lord would come to me. God's people should be filled with awestruck wonder that the God who is holy, holy, holy left his throne in heaven to pursue and rescue an unholy people. We went to Disney World for the first time as a family in 2021. One of my favorite moments of that trip was watching my daughter Grace's response to the coming of the Disney princesses in their parade when they had their princess parade through the complex. Grace had heard stories of the princesses. She had seen pictures of the princesses. She had costumes to dress up like the princesses. But when she finally saw them, she was struck with wonder. 
she was transfixed. Like her mouth was closed and then it was like gaping open. Right? Like when, when, when that wonder really strikes you, you're like, I can't believe my mouth is wide open, but I can't close it right now because I'm so awestruck at what was, uh, what was happening. She was filled with wonder because the Disney princesses had come. They're, they're here. Friends, how much more should we be filled with wonder that the immortal God clothed himself with mortality? The infinite God entered time and space. The author of history became a part of history to rewrite our stories. That's what he did for you and me, to rescue us from darkness, to clothe us in robes of righteousness, to pay the penalty for our sins and give us eternal life. Jesus' coming into the world is cause for wonder. It's also cause we see in the passage for joy. We already saw that the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped. But notice what Elizabeth's Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of his leaping. Look at verse 44. Elizabeth says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now let's remind ourselves real quick. Kids, can any of you tell me who the baby is in Elizabeth's womb. What's his name? We'll go Abram. John, that's right. Now I'm going to ask a teenager. Can any of you tell us what John's mission or ministry in life was to be? Any of you remember what mission God gave him? We're going to go with a teen. I'm going to wait. Teens, you're going to embarrass me. I'm going to sit here until, oh, there we go, Adam. He was going to be John the Baptist or the baptizer. Specifically, what, what was he called to do? You can look. I'll give you a hint. It's in the previous passage. Boom, Claire. Yes, to prepare the way for Jesus. He was to go before the Lord as a forerunner to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. Why do I point that out? Because here we see he's already begun his ministry as a forerunner by leaping for joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. He's pointing out this is the Savior's here. He's already working as the forerunner to the Messiah in Elizabeth's womb, leaping for joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. And I want us to just sit with that for, the, for a moment. The man, the baby, who God gave the mission of preparing the way for the coming of Jesus Christ, the first thing he does when Jesus comes is leap for joy. Let's recognize this. If, the pre, if this preborn baby could leap for joy in his mother's womb, he could have also bowed in deference. He could have also prostrated himself in his mother's womb. Elizabeth could have said, the baby in my womb just just laid down before you to bow before the king, right? He could have done those things, but he didn't. The very first thing he did was leap for joy because the coming of Jesus Christ into the world is cause for joy. Joy is why Jesus came. This is clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Think of Isaiah. I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase a, a, a different verses in Isaiah, but think about what Isaiah says. He said that at the coming of the Messiah, the wilderness would blossom abundantly and to rejoice with joy. Think about in a brutal hurricane, windstorm type event as the trees are just going back and forth. In the midst of a storm, that's a terrifying event. Now I want you to imagine that it's just perfectly crystal clear blue skies, a perfect, you know, 68 degrees, no humidity. Maybe you're in Florida, standing on a beach, whatever it is, like perfect weather. But now imagine all the palm trees on earth, all the redwoods on earth, all the sequoias on earth, just shaking back and forth, clapping and singing for joy. That's what happens when Messiah comes into the world. Nature sings for joy. The eyes, Isaiah says, of the blind would be opened, and the mute man would sing for joy. The ransomed of the Lord will return to Zion, and get this, everlasting joy will be on their heads. Think of, think of Jesus in the Gospel of John. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Later, he says, you may have sorrow now, but when I'm raised from the dead, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Think about Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jesus came to give joy. Christianity is about joy. God's joy in you, and you living by God's joy now and forever. Christianity is about joy. Now, to my non-Christian friends who may be here, I wonder if that's surprising to you. Before I became a Christian, I didn't think joy had anything to do with Christianity. I thought Christianity was a joyless religious system that was just about following rules and not doing the things that were really fun. And not only that, but Christians can also do a pretty bad job at living with the joy that Jesus came to bring, right? We often let the difficulty of our circumstances suffocate our joy, but every single Christian in this room would want you to know that God is about joy. He is about your eternal joy, so much so that he sent his son into the world so that you would have joy. Jesus is the joy bringer. The one who brings a restored relationship with God. Who brings the joy of freedom from the power of sin. Who brings the joy of knowing that we will no longer face condemnation for our sins. The joy of being given new life. The joy of being filled with God's spirit. The joy of knowing that no matter what may come, not even death itself, nothing can take our joy. And the joy of knowing that we will spend eternity with God in a perfected universe, free from the corruption of sin and death. And that joy, if you don't know Jesus or follow him, can be yours today. Jesus came. He lived the perfect life. He died the death that we deserve. He poured the punishment for our sins so that freedom from condemnation and God's judgment would be ours in Christ and that the joy of the Holy Spirit would be ours. And that's, that's ours through faith in Jesus. Jesus came to bring joy to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember that Jesus, the joy bringer, has brought everlasting joy to you in his coming. He brought you from death to life. 
from darkness to light, from under God's judgment to under God's wings, from being an enemy of God to a child of God, from lost to found, from blind to seeing, from without hope in the world to filled with the eternal and unquenchable joy that God gives. I wonder if you would say that joy, the joy that Jesus brings, has been evident in your life recently. Would you say that? Parents, would your children say that joy is definitely a part of the Christian life because of how they've watched you live with joy over the past few weeks? Would your neighbors or coworkers know that Jesus came to bring everlasting joy based on your life and your testimony? And if not, why not? Now listen, what I'm not saying, here's what I'm not saying to do. I'm not saying that the next time you see your neighbor out in the yard, you bum rush out of the house, burst out of the door, and you like run up to them, howdy neighbor, I'm just, it's so great to see you, just want, I'm living with the everlasting joy that Jesus brings, and I want you to know that joy too. But you, you don't have to do that, right? That might be going too far in the other direction. They would probably not think you were joyful, but crazy, and they would think Jesus came to make people crazy, and I don't want that. What I mean instead is, as you're experiencing the ups and downs of life in the presence of your coworkers, your family, and friends, are you communicating about your experience of those ups and downs in a way that they would know that you have a joy that can't be quenched or taken? Ask it another way, would they only know about your trials and frustrations and annoyances and fears and gripes? Or would they know that while you do experience those things, that Jesus has also given you an unsinkable joy that remains afloat in the severest of storms? Make no mistake, friends. Jesus came for your joy. And the glorious news for those who believe is that you and I have only had a tiny foretaste. You know when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and you get those little cups, little juice, right? That's like, that's, that's how much joy you and I have had. That's a tiny foretaste of the joy that is to come in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Jesus' coming into the world is cause for joy. And third, Jesus' coming into the world is cause for faith. It should elicit faith in us. We should respond to Jesus' coming with faith. Look at verse 45. Elizabeth says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth is referring to the fact that Mary believed Gabriel's promises, and as a result, her, and as a result of her belief in God's promises, she is blessed. But I want you to notice, I'm going to point out something that I don't normally point out. I, don't, I, try, I try not to point out grammar and things like that uh, as I'm preaching. But I want you to notice that in the original Greek, she doesn't say, blessed are you, Mary. She doesn't address her in the second person. Instead, Elizabeth uses a general participle of address. She, she is speaking to Mary, but she says, actually, blessed is the one who believes, as you have Mary, making Mary an, an example of faith 
in God's promises. Blessedness is for those who believe. Because Mary believed, she is blessed. In our day, we often think of being blessed as having material wealth, physical fitness, being well thought of, having a great job, and things like that, but that's not at all what the Bible means by the word blessed. To be blessed means to be in right relationship with God, living within his covenant promises, being reconciled to God, and the path to that blessing, true blessing, is through faith, belief. Mary believed, and so she was blessed. And what was it that she believed? Yes, she believed in God's specific promise about this coming child, but look at the song she sings in verses 46 to 55. Look specifically at verses 54 and 55. She says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary believes the promises God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She's holding on to those promises by faith. Mary believes God's promises that he would send a child of the woman who would crush the serpent and bring blessing to the nations of the earth. Just like the the book that Jonathan read earlier today. He came to kill the dragon. She's believing that that, that promise. In short, Mary is blessed because she has believed in God's promise of salvation. And that salvation has come through her son, Jesus Christ. Some of my non-Christian friends, I wanna encourage you to really consider in this Christmas season who Jesus is and why he came and what that means for you. If you wanna be truly blessed, reconciled to God and forgiven of your sins, knowing God as your savior, just as Mary did in verse 47, to know the everlasting joy that Jesus brings, you must believe, wholeheartedly embrace him, and give your life over to him, following him completely, loving the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That that is the greatest gift you could give to yourself this Christmas. And I want you to notice from Mary's song, it doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, what your job is, or what your social status is. Jesus came for whoever. He came for anyone who would turn to him in faith. Mary even says so in verse 50. Look there. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What does it mean to fear God, right? I think the best way to answer that is to look at Mary's description of those who don't fear God. If you just let your eyes fall over verses 51 to 53, you'll see that those who don't fear God are the proud who pridefully think they'll be able to stand before God on their own. Verse 52, they're the mighty who use their strength to crush and oppress others. Verse 53, it's the wealthy or those who put their trust in their wealth rather than thanking God for it and recognizing their need for him. God's mercy is for those in any generation who would turn from pridefully trusting in themselves, who turn from using the world's ways of power to gain influence and wealth, and who turn from pursuing the riches of this world to pursue the true riches that can be found in Jesus Christ alone. And if you do that today, God's mercy and the everlasting joy that Jesus brings will be yours. I also wanna say a specific word to the teens 
about responding to Jesus in faith and living by faith as Mary does. I want to speak specifically to you all because while we don't know exactly how old Mary was when she conceived Jesus, the majority of Christian historians believe she would have been around 15 or 16 years old. And the first reason I point that out is just to observe how mightily God used someone who was your age. That's pretty outstanding, isn't it? God used someone who was your age in mighty and profound ways to fulfill his plan of redemption. The second reason I point out Mary's likely age is to encourage you all to grow in your faith by saturating yourself with God's word and promises. We don't have time to point out all the connections, but Mary's song is ridiculously good. There are so many connections to other parts of scripture. You read it and you're like, is she citing this? Or like, I feel like every psalm in the Psalter is like jam-packed into there. I feel like this sounds like Hannah's song after Samuel was born. I feel like this sounds like Moses' song after Israel was brought out of Egypt. I feel like this sounds like so many different psalms. I feel like I hear the prophets in here and the writings and the law. I feel like it's all, and it's all in there. There are so many connections to other parts of Scripture, from the law to the prophets to the writings. This teenage girl is filled with God's Word. Put it more crudely, if you cut Mary, she bleeds Bible. She sings and the Bible just comes out because she has been meditating on God's Word, meditating on God's promises. Teens, spend time meditating on God's Word and promises. God grows us in our faith as we meditate on his word. We, we like to say, we don't, we don't like to say things as Christians like, if you do this, then this will happen. Because we get that hard things can come up and there, there's often not a one for one. But like as a pastor, in my experience, the most mature Christians are the ones who spend the most time in the word. It just seems to work out that way. Teens, you don't have to wait. You can saturate yourself in God's word now. And God's word will just start to pour out of you and flow out of you as it did for Mary. Give yourself to the study of God's word. Fill yourself with God's word so that when you sing or pray, it comes out of you. And over time, you'll find out that as you spend more time in his word, the stronger your faith will become. And for the members of CBC, the faith that we've confessed in response to the coming of Jesus is also strengthened as we give ourselves to gathering together with other believers to worship the Lord. Did you notice that after receiving God's promise of a child and hearing about how God has also made a similar promise to her relative Elizabeth, Mary immediately goes to visit her to spend time in the presence of another believer who had also come to share in God's promised salvation. Now, now we don't know what would have happened to Mary had she not gone to see Elizabeth. We can only speculate. Maybe in time, she would, her trust in God's promises would have waned. Maybe she would have begun to doubt that she actually saw an angel. We, we don't know. But what we do know is that her faith was positively strengthened as she joined with a fellow believer to share about God's work in her life and worship the Lord with her. Friends, one of the greatest gifts God has given us this Christmas and every week of the year, is the gift of gathering with the church to share about God's work in our lives and to worship him together. 
whether you stay here and you're a member here for a long time or you move on to another church in the area or you move out of the area because of work or for some other reason, if you're following Jesus, I wanna encourage you, give yourself to planting yourself in a church community where you can hear the gospel preached to you, where you can grow in God's, in, in faith in God's promises and in his salvation, and where you can be surrounded by other believers who are trusting in God's promises as well. God, God has given the church for the growth of his people that we might lock arms with one another and encourage each other each day as we see that great day drawing near to remind ourselves of the wonder of the incarnation and the wonder of the gospel, of the joy that we should experience in response to it and, and live our lives with, and of the faith that God has brought to mankind and the blessing that God has brought through his son Jesus. We gather today and each Sunday to celebrate Jesus' coming, to celebrate Jesus, the salvation God has given us, to celebrate the mercy God has shown to us and to remind ourselves of that wonder that God would visit such an unlovely people to give us everlasting joy and to bring us from death to life through faith in his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the gospel. We pray in light of what Paul says in Ephesians that, that the Ephesians would come to know what is the height and breadth and depth and width and length of your love for us in Christ. We pray that you would expand our capacity to understand your love in Christ and to meditate on the glorious wonders of the gospel. Fill us with joy, we pray. Strengthen our faith. Sanctify and save, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.